0: Well, good morning. Uh, It's fun to be here with you this morning. Um, uh, Larry gave me a date to preach, and it was today. And uh, we were preaching on the parables, and the parable I got assigned was great. But I decided that there was another parable I really wanted to preach I'm getting old enough that I kind of do what I want anymore. So, so I asked Larry if I could switch, and he said, yeah. So, uh, so I'm going to preach on a parable I wanted to. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. You can tell me later <laughs> if it is. So, I want to know if I handed you a three-by-five card this morning. And I asked you to write a word or a phrase that uh, captured the heart of Jesus' teaching, what he was about. uh, That thing that was absolutely essential to him, without which uh, you'd miss him. I want to know what you'd write down. really want you to think about that, write it in your mind. What would that word or phrase, what would it be? You know, I think when you ask that question, probably the most common response you get is, well, Jesus was all about love. Well, that's not a bad response. I mean, the greatest commandment is love God, love people. But do you know in the gospels, he only talks about that two times? So maybe you'd write down, well, it's all about salvation, or faith, or forgiveness. And all those things are great, and Jesus mentions them, but that's not it. If you've been around Waterstone for very long, hopefully you know what the answer to this question is. I think the phrase that captures it is the kingdom of God. Gordon Fee, who is or was a New Testament professor at Regent, uh, would begin his class on the New Testament with this statement. He would get up and he would say, if you miss the kingdom, you miss everything. And just for emphasis, he would say it again and again and again. And a total of seven times. I guess that's the number of perfection. But he wanted people to get it. I've listened to Fee's teaching on the kingdom and he is very clear, if you miss the kingdom of God, you miss Jesus altogether. Because the reality is, Jesus was all about the kingdom. And my goal today is to convince you that Dr. Fee was right. We've been going through a series on the parables. Most of the parables are out of Matthew for this series. You know, the parables were a primary way uh, of Jesus' teaching, and and almost all the parables have to do with this notion of kingdom. Uh, That's the focus. And this morning, we're going to look at what is probably the shortest parable that Jesus gives, but I would argue that perhaps it's maybe one of the most important. It is found at the end of Matthew 13. Jesus has just given a series of parables and at the end he's going to ask this key question to engage his disciples and then he's going to give this really short parable and both have to do with their understanding of the kingdom. The question is this, Matthew 13, 51. Have you understood all these things? What's the things he's talking about? The parables that he's just taught, all of them having to do with the kingdom. Do you do you understand what I'm saying about the kingdom? And that's a fair question, right? Because How Jesus was explaining the kingdom to them is very different than they understood it. The Jews had an expectation that the Messiah, this king, was going to come and set up shop in a very physical way. The kingdom was going to come in its totality. And as a result, the Romans, who were an occupying force at that time, would be kicked out of Jerusalem. The oppression would end. Shalom would come in a very real, physical, manifested way in a political way, in a violent way. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it's coming. It's different than what you expect. So he asked them, are are, are you beginning to understand what I'm trying to teach you, that this kingdom is very different than what you expected? And the disciples' response, yeah, we get it. (laughs) They don't. Uh, You read the rest of the book of Matthew, and that becomes pretty evident. They understand some of it. They don't understand all of it. It, it, It's a a little challenging to get. But he goes on, and and he says this. He says, he said to them, therefore, every teacher, and the word there is really scribe, and a scribe was an expert in the law in the Old Testament. They were the, the theological Biblical scholars of the day. They were the people who were supposed to understand God the best. They were the people you would go ask a question to. He says, every, for every teacher, scribe of the law, who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. Now, kingdom of heaven is equivalent to kingdom of God. Matthew just uses heaven as a substitute word, uh, um, but it's the same concept. He says, Every teacher of the law who's become a disciple or a learner about the kingdom. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, guys, that's you. You guys now are the scribes. You're the experts because I've been discipling you, teaching you about this this notion of the kingdom. Uh, um, You're supposed to get it. By, By the way, that expectation of understanding the kingdom wasn't just for them. It's also for us. If we're followers of Jesus, we should have a very rich and deep understanding of the kingdom of God. And if we don't, we're missing out. Okay. And here's why Jesus tells us. He gives them this little parable. Um, Everyone who, who has been discipled in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. That's all parable, and you go, uh, what, what, what? Old, new? I, I don't get it. It's a little bit cryptic. It's it's really not that cryptic. He he's making a point that understanding the kingdom is what ties everything together. Uh, um, all that has happened before Jesus. That's the old treasure. That's everything in the Old Testament. The beginning of the story. That's the old treasure. And what is happening now with Jesus, that's the new treasure. In other words, he's saying it's it's this understanding of the kingdom of God that is the, the unifying theme. Put it this way, the kingdom is the key framework that ties the whole grand story, the story of the Bible, the story of what God is doing in the world, it ties that whole story together. Now, get it. Uh, Jesus is saying that the kingdom is not a secondary issue or a a, a detail of theology. He's saying it's absolutely foundational uh, because that understanding the kingdom is what helps us make sense of everything. David Maines was a pastor years ago. When I first got into ministry, he had a, a, a radio program called the Chapel of the Air and early on, he did a series on the kingdom of God on his radio show. And he said something that has stuck with me now almost 40 years. He said, when you read the Bible, you have to put on kingdom glasses. You know how you'll, you'll take some glasses that are tinted, maybe yellow or blue, and, and that tint colors everything? That's what he's getting at. He says, you have to put on kingdom glasses, Because when you put on kingdom glasses, then you see the tint of the, the kingdom in everything. Kingdom glasses colors it all. In fact, he put at the front of his Bible, I am reading about the greatest of all kings. You know, he's absolutely right. If you put on kingdom glasses and you start looking for it, you begin to see the kingdom everywhere. You begin to see it everywhere in the ministry of Jesus. You begin to see it everywhere in the early church. You begin to see it all over the writings of Paul throughout the New Testament. I mean, Jesus, uh, he talked about it all the time. The kingdom of God was the heart of his stump speech, right? Right? In the Gospels, the kingdom is mentioned 121 times. 90 of those times, it's on the lips of Jesus himself. And think of the story, how it develops. Uh, the Gospels begin with the genealogy, and the genealogy trans, uh, uh, traces Jesus' lineage back to King David. Why? It's the royal line. And then who's one of the first group of people to show up? It's the Magi. And what are the Magi looking for? They're looking for a king. And when Herod gets word of it, he gets all nervous about this birth of a baby. Why? Because he understands this this little Jesus is going to be a competing king. He gets it. When John the Baptist shows up, what does John the Baptist preach? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus starts preaching, what's he preach? The kingdom of God has come near. He talked about it all the time. When he set out the 12 to continue preaching, what were they supposed to preach? The kingdom of God is at hand. Later on, when he sends out the 70, what are they supposed to preach? The very same thing, the kingdom has come near. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he enters as what? Coming king, different than they expected, not on a stallion, but on a donkey. But he's a coming king. When he stands before Pilate, what is the question that Pilate wants to know? No, are you king? Are you the king of the Jews? And then look at the imagery of the crucifixion, right? He gets a crown of thorns. He gets a purple robe, which is the color of royalty. He, he gets lifted up, in a sense, enthroned on the cross as a king. And the title above him is king of the Jews. Look, folks, Jesus was not killed because he was claiming to be savior of the world. Right? The Romans could care less. He was killed because he was presenting himself as an alternative kingdom and promoting... an alternative king and promoting a different kingdom. He was perceived as a threat to the political order. Everything about Jesus is saturated with the reality of the kingdom of God. And it doesn't end there if you go into the book of Acts, right? Uh, Jesus dies. He's resurrected. He has 40 days to spend with his disciples before he's ascended. Where? To the right hand of God, a position of power and authority, a position of the king. 40 days. What do you think he's going to talk about? The most important stuff he can because he's leaving his disciples. What's he talking about? For 40 days he preaches to them about the kingdom of God. Are you beginning to see how important this is? In Acts chapter 8, Philip begins preaching. What does he preach about? He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In in Acts 17, Paul is arrested, and he's accused of what? Preaching that there is another king other than Caesar. In Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus for three months, and what does he teach about when he's in Ephesus? The kingdom of God. At the end of the book of Acts... The closing chapter, Paul is in Rome, and we get a summary statement about what he's doing in Rome. You know what he's doing? Preaching about the gospel of the kingdom. I mean, it's everywhere. You put on kingdom glasses, and you cannot miss it. The rest of the New Testament is saturated with kingdom and royal language. Messiah, ruler, governor, crown, sovereign, scepter, glory, majesty. The notion that every knee shall bow, that Jesus is at the right hand of God, that all things are under his feet, that God has highly exalted him above all rulers and authority and power and dominion. And in the book of Revelation, he is referred to as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Put on kingdom glasses, and you see the kingdom almost on every page. Which should make us ask a question. Why do we miss it? For the first seven years of my Christian life, I never heard a message on the kingdom of God. And I had no idea of what it was. If the kingdom was that important to Jesus and that dominated all his teaching and dominates the whole of the New Testament, don't you think we should be talking about it all the time? Don't you think it would be absolutely essential to our faith and our theology and the way we live? How have we missed it? Quite honestly, most Christians I meet have no no real understanding of what the kingdom is. We use the word in terms of a cliché, but if you ask them to define the kingdom for me, it's all over the place. That's not their fault. That's our fault. I'm talking about preachers and teachers because we haven't taught it. Let me give you a couple reasons, just two why I think we missed it. One, we're Americans, right? Kings aren't part of our culture. We don't like kings. We don't like sovereign authority. You know, people who can tell us what to do. We are a nation born out of revolution against a king. So why would we want to be part of a religion that puts the king at the very center of it? We're too independent and individualistic for that. So when it comes to our faith, and this is the second reason we miss it, we frame most of our thinking about our faith around the notion of personal salvation. Not the notion of a king and a kingdom. And I think we miss it. So in the rest of this message, i want to do two things. One, I want to talk a little bit about what the kingdom is. If you have been around Waterstone for a while, hopefully you have a good understanding. We, we talk about the kingdom a lot around here. And the second thing I want to do is talk about the implications of a kingdom framework. In other words, if we actually do put on kingdom glasses and see all of life and all of faith through that framework, how does it affect how we live? How does it affect our walk with Jesus? Important questions. So what is the kingdom? Well, when we think of the word kingdom, we think of a place or a realm. We, we have this notion of a throne and a castle, you know, and a king sitting on it. Um, but the kingdom, the word basilia, which is the Greek word for kingdom, isn't really talking so much about a place. The word is descriptive of an action. The kingdom means to rule or to reign or to exercise authority. At its very heart, the kingdom is the rule and the reign of God. Now, it's really interesting. When you go into the New Testament and the Gospels, Jesus never defines the kingdom. And part of the reason he doesn't is the people listening to him had a pretty good understanding of what kingdom was and what kingdom meant because they lived under Caesar's kingdom, right? Caesar's rule and reign, and it was oppressive. But they understood this notion Of authority and they understood what a kingdom was and it didn't have much to do with the place as much as this governing authority they got that but Jesus is saying with him comes this this new kind of kingdom it it is breaking in and it's very different you see this notion of authority or rule or reign or in a sense God's will in the Lord's Prayer right Jesus teaches us to pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, you know, the kingdom comes to reality in heaven, right? Because God's will is done there. We are to pray that the kingdom comes down here, that God's will would be done in this realm. And when God's will comes to be manifested, his values, his compassion, his love by his people in this realm, then the kingdom is breaking in. I like how John Ortberg talks about it. He has this great phrase. He says, when the up there comes down here. That's the essence of the kingdom. Now you can begin to play the notion of the kingdom out, and you, you, you can see different dimensions of it. Uh, uh, there's always a king in a kingdom. In this case, the king is Jesus. There, there's a rule, a king's rule or reign. They govern. That's part of this notion of kingdom. Typically there's a people. Uh, in the Old Testament it's Israel. In the New Testament It's the church, kings have an agenda, a will, things they want done and desire. And there's always, there is a realm, but, but not so much a physical realm as a sphere where that authority is manifested. And ultimately we see it in its complete form in the new heavens and the new earth when the kingdom comes in its fullness. But now the concept becomes tricky. And I think this is another reason we, we don't talk about the kingdom because we really don't know how to deal with it. Because sometimes when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he's talking about a physical thing that's going to come in the future. The new heavens and the new earth and it will be manifested in this world in a very concrete way. And then other times Jesus talks as if it's not physical all, at all, that it's not future but that it's present. And that wherever he is, the kingdom is, is become breaking in. And how do you put this notion of the future and the present together? And the reality is, we live in the presence of the future. The ultimate full kingdom is coming on the day of God, the day of judgment. When Jesus comes back, the kingdom will come in its fullness. But right now, because Jesus is broken in to this world, and he has followers who give him allegiance, the kingdom is breaking in now. It's like when you're in a completely dark room and you open the door to the outside and the light just floods in. That's what's happening. The kingdom hasn't come in its fullness, but it's here. And here's the most important thing to understand. You and I, if we are followers of Jesus, we are part of that kingdom now because we've given him our allegiance and we've surrendered ourselves to his will. So now we are participants and, in a sense, ambassadors for the kingdom of God. Colossians 1.13 puts it this way. For he has rescued us from the dominion or the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's a critical concept to understand. You and I are now part of his kingdom. And are to live out his agenda in this world as kingdom people. Our allegiance has changed. We now give our allegiance to King Jesus. Okay. So if that's what the kingdom is and we're part of it, then what difference does it make um, in our lives? If we put on kingdom glasses, what does it change? I'm going to give you three things this morning. And we could spend a couple days talking about this because it, it, it it's colors everything. But the first thing, when you put on kingdom glasses, you begin to understand uh, um, that we are part of this grand story, and the kingdom shapes that story and begins to shape the gospel. You know, when I uh, first became a Christian, the gospel or the good news that I was taught was pretty simple. I was a sinner. Jesus came to the earth to die for my sin. He was resurrected. And if I invited him into my heart, I would be forgiven. And then when I die, I would get to go to heaven. And I was told that Jesus was my personal Lord and Savior. And that meant that my agenda in life was personal growth, read my Bible, go to church, become mature, which meant overcoming personal moral sins, give money. And then the primary mandate was to evangelize. To tell other people about Jesus so they could invite him into their heart as well. And if you wanted to to live a really significant life, you had to be involved in ministry. Either be become a pastor, or if you were really, 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 really committed, become a missionary. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Because nothing else would last. People and the Bible and everything else... People and the Bible would go into eternity, but everything else would be destroyed and burned up. Now, that's not necessarily wrong. There's a lot of good things in that. There are places where I disagree with what I've just told you. But it is very incomplete. It's a very small story. And and when I was taught that gospel, no one ever told me about the kingdom. No one ever told me that Jesus was the cosmic king and that there was this larger agenda that He had for the world. No one ever mentioned the fact that Jesus part of this grand story that began with creation and ended with the new heavens and new earth. I mean, I was left with the impression that really this Christianity thing was just simply about me and Jesus. But it's not. It is about that, but it's also and primarily about so much more. Folks, we are part of this grand story, right? It begins with creation. God creates the world and he creates humans, and we're created to co-rule this world with him, to be co-rulers in his kingdom. And what happens? There's a rebellion. Humanity decides, no, we don't, we don't want to rule under you or with you. We want to rule on our own. And there's this thing called the fall, sin enters in, and it affects everything in this kingdom. It it becomes a rival kingdom, a rebellious kingdom, and everything is impacted. But God is gracious, so he begins this, this process of redemption. It begins by him calling Abraham. He's trying to win back his kingdom, and then it goes through the kings and Israel and the prophets, and then it comes to fruition when when jesus comes on the scene and why is jesus here jesus did not come simply to die for you (laughs) i was told you know that if i was the only person in the world jesus would come and die for me that is not true uh, my salvation your salvation is secondary to a much larger story right jesus came into this world to die why to defeat sin to defeat evil, to overcome death. And that's a good thing because you and I get to benefit from that. But the agenda was much bigger than you and me. The, the, The agenda was the redemption of the cosmos. That's why the future is the restoration. A day when the kingdom comes in its fullness the day of judgment when God comes back and sets up the kingdom and makes everything as it was supposed to be and overcomes the rebellion. That's a little bit different story than Jesus came and died for me and I can have him in my heart and go to heaven. We, we, <laughs> do you get this? We are part of this grand story, part of this, the, the gospel, the good news is not simply this little plan of salvation. You know what the good news is? Jesus never Preach this notion that you're a sinner, that you invite him into your life and you get to go to heaven. Find that, if you find that in the Gospels, please come and show me afterwards. If you find that in the book of Acts, show me after. It's just not there. Gospeling in the New Testament is telling the story of Jesus. The Gospel in the New Testament is the good news that Jesus is the coming king. It's the good news that Jesus has entered into our world and by his death and resurrection has defeated sin, death, and evil, and now has become king. That's the good news. All through the Old Testament, good news was the announcement of a new king. And when Jesus comes on the scene, What is he preaching? He's preaching the the good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom has arrived. And you go through the book of Acts, and what do they preach? They, They are gospeling about the story of Jesus, that he is the king who now is reigning at the right hand of God. And because he's there, redemption has come, and you can have forgiveness of sins, and you can have a relationship with him, and he can change your life. Just give him your allegiance. You see, when you tell the story that way, then you don't walk away and think, oh, it was all about me. I mean, it has a huge impact on me. But it's not about me. It's about him. It's about him. And when you embrace that story, that larger story, then it becomes exciting and encompassing and enthralling. And you begin to understand that you're part of something bigger than yourself. So Jesus' kingdom glasses make us aware of the larger story and what the gospel really is. The second thing kingdom glasses do is they reshape our view of Jesus. You know, we all have a framework through which we see Jesus that that shapes and forms our relationship with him. And it's probably multi-dimensional i mean we see jesus in very different ways at different times in our lives we may see him as our teacher our friend our shepherd our healer our guide our lord our savior in the evangelical world the primary framework for jesus is to see him as my personal lord and savior which is not bad he is my savior and he is my master but that's very individualistic And it can be very private and very self-focused on my forgiveness and my relationship and my personal benefit. But that's how we kind of shaped the gospel, right? The plan of salvation that we we tell people because we we want to make it attractive. and, And we want to talk about the personal benefit. Because in a sense what we're trying to do is sell it so that people will make decisions. And it gives this sense that God is very personal and intimate, which is awesome. But there's a problem with it. It's not really how the New Testament presents Jesus. Just not. Do you know Jesus is never called your personal Savior? Not once. Anywhere in the New Testament. You know, that phrase does not appear until the mid-1800s. And that means for 1800 years, Christians did not refer to Jesus as their personal Savior. I mean, to say he's my personal Savior sounds like he's my personal butler. I can, it, it, it can imply, I don't think we mean it to, but it can imply, well, it's all about me. And that's not the New Testament take on Jesus. The word Savior is used to describe Jesus 19 times in the New Testament. And it always refers to him as either the Savior or our Savior and always has the big picture in mind. In other words, he's the Savior of the world, he's the cosmic Savior, the Savior of the church, the Savior of the people of God. He is never described as my Savior. That is to reduce Jesus to something much smaller than he is. It's not the way he's presented. In the New Testament, Jesus is primarily presented as Lord and Christ. And both are royal and kingly terms. One focuses on his identity and one focuses on our response to who he is, right? Christ, when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, we told you that, but it is a title given to him. It is equivalent to Messiah in the Old Testament. And Messiah and Christ both mean anointed, and the people who were anointed were kings. The expectation of the coming Messiah was the expectation of a coming king. And Jesus is the king who has come. Now get this. Christ is used of Jesus 529 times. <laughs> Every time we say Jesus Christ, you know what we're saying? Jesus is King. How do we miss it? How do we miss the king in the kingdom? I mean, when we, when we call ourselves Christians, right? Uh, Christian was a title given to followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, for the first time. Christian is the title Christ, which means king or anointed one, and it's linked to an adjectival ending borrowed from Latin. You don't care about that, but the point is that I-A-N, Christian denotes adhering to or even belonging to as in slave ownership. So when we say we're we're Christians, we're saying we're owned by Christ. We're we're owned by the King. Maybe it would be more clear if we called ourselves Kingians instead of Christians, because that's what we're saying. Jesus is our King. And then you have the word Lord. The word Lord means primarily master, sovereign, ruler, one who has authority or power, and as often as it's used referring to Christ becomes uh, this notion of deity, that he is God. And Lord is used in the New Testament in reference to Jesus 775 times. And the two go together, right? When you say Jesus Christ is Lord, you're saying Christ is King, and he's my lord or master. In other words, it's implying I have submitted and surrendered my will to the king. I have given him my allegiance. That's why Paul says if you confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you're saved. In other words, the essence of coming into a relationship with Jesus is not inviting Christ into your life. He doesn't want to become part of our stories. Our stories are a mess. He wants us to become part of his story. Only once is Jesus said to be in our hearts. hundred and twenty-five times we are said to be in Jesus, in Christ. Folks, are you getting it? It's about him. It's not about us. Jesus is my Savior. But more than that, he is my king. And saviors and kings are very different. When I see Jesus simply as my savior, it makes it all about me, what he has done for me. To see him as king makes it all about him and in what he wants me to do out of loyalty to him. A king demands an ongoing commitment and an ongoing relationship. A savior, well that can be a one time encounter. A king demands your whole life for a whole lifetime. A king has an agenda and a will. And when you serve a king, you live under his authority. He has the right to your life. He wants your loyalty and allegiance and obedience. He wants everything. A savior just wants a nice thank you. That's that's not what Jesus wants. I was talking to a friend uh, two days ago, and we were talking about this notion of kingdom. And she said to me, "You know, every time I pray now, I imagine myself curtsying before God." And I thought, well, "Why would you do that?" Well, well, He's my King, right? He's my Majesty. And I thought, "Oh, you get it. He's our Majesty, and for Peter, that's how He's referred to." Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus can be your savior and your friend and your counselor and your guide and your shepherd. But he will not be any of those unless he is your king. Kingdom glasses change how you see the agenda. Changes how you see the large story. Changes how you see Jesus. And lastly, changes how you see our agenda in life. I was taught, as I said, that the agenda in the Christian life was personal growth and evangelism and not much else mattered. In fact, I, I was told, you don't you don't worry about social issues. You don't care much about the poor. You don't care much about where the world goes because in the end it's going to be destroyed in not they, they had this notion. They didn't understand that there's a restoration, not simply a destruction, that this world has a continuity with the next. So it didn't matter. That was just bad theology the agenda for us is so much more than simply personal growth and evangelism jesus gets to it in matthew chapter 6 right verse 31 he says so don't worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them in other words he's saying don't be like the pagans they run after personal security they run after personal safety they worry totally about their, their, their survival. That's their focus. Don't be like them. You're, you, you serve a king who knows you need all that stuff. You, that doesn't need to be your focus. Instead, seek first his kingdom. And that's an ongoing command. Be seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, his rule and reign, and that word righteousness can be translated as his justice. He's giving us an agenda to change the world. We are to seek his kingdom first in our own life, so that he has authority over everything we do, over our relationships, over our money, over our sexuality, over our careers. We, we do all that in service to him as king, but then he wants us to go and infiltrate the world, become light in the darkness and salt. That make a difference and we're not doing it out of use of power or coercion or political control we're doing it out of compassion and love like he changed the world through sacrificial love and that's the agenda do you know what that means folks it means we have a decision to make we can either live small or we can live large In other words, we can live small. We can make life all about us, our personal security, our personal safety, about maintaining our privilege, our happiness, our success, our peace, our fulfillment. And we can hide away, separate from the world, you know, get a nice home, a nice car, a nice career. And we can can make Jesus a nice add-on to all that and hope we get eternal life in heaven to boot. That's living small. That's living like the pagans. The alternative is to live large. We can make life all about the king, all about King Jesus and his kingdom. And we can participate in this ongoing drama where we give our life away and sacrifice for others and live with compassion and use our resources, not simply on ourselves, but on others. Care about the less privileged, care about the poor, care about the oppressed, care about those who are mistreated, care about the foreigner, care about those people who don't have the advantages that we have. We can give ourselves away to bring about the kingdom and bring about God's justice through love and compassion. That's living large. And that can be our focus because we have a king who will take care of all the rest. We can't be sucked in. We we can't miss the kingdom because it is to be the agenda for our lives that we serve the king. my prayer for you is that you would put on kingdom glasses. That everything you see would be tinted by the kingdom and the king. And that you would live large. Let's pray. Father, you give us the privilege of being part of your story, which is huge. Of living lives full of significance and meaning because they're given to you as kings. Father, help us have the courage and the commitment and the loyalty to live that way. For king and kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.